we're going to pray and ask for God's help as we look at this part of God's word. Would you join me? Father in heaven, we thank you that your word speaks to us uh, as individuals and corporately as a church. And Lord, your word tells us how you want us to live in response to the gospel, in response to how you've saved us. And Lord, we pray that as I speak your word today, as I preach it, that you might empower me by your spirit to do that in a way that is true and faithful, that honours Jesus and is helpful for your people. Lord, we pray that you might, by your spirit, change us and grow us to be more like Jesus. And for his honour and praise, we pray it. Amen. Please keep your Bibles open at Ephesians chapter 4 as we look at this passage together. Well, if I ask you what you've been called to, what would you say? Maybe I've been called to be a teacher, a a nurse, a builder. Maybe I've been called to be a parent or to serve on cross-cultural mission. Often when we think of calling, we, we think of a job or a vocation or a gospel ministry even. And, and yet God says that we've all been called to something else. You've been called to be part of something huge and life-changing. And when you get that, it might change your life. You see, God hasn't simply called you to be a parent or to a job that you might do 40 hours a week. He's called you to himself, into relationship with him and to live for him. And when you and I live for Christ, live lives worthy of our calling, others are built up and encouraged. Others grow more like Jesus and to maturity in him. And it's life-changing for us, for them, for the church. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul, who's suffering for serving Christ, he calls the Ephesians to live lives worthy of their calling. By calling, he means them and us being chosen and saved by God's grace. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 4, it's chosen to be holy and blameless. It also means they've been called to have relationship with God and a hope of heaven, chapter 1, verse 18 called to experience salvation by faith in Jesus, saved not by good works, but to do good works, chapter 2, verse 10. And so how do we live a life worthy of our salvation? We live holy lives, lives that please God. And what this Christian life looks like, Paul now explains in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. We could say Ephesians chapters 1 to 3 are about our riches in Christ. And now the last three chapters are about our responsibilities in Christ. In John Stott's words, through Jesus Christ who died for sinners and was raised from death, God is creating something entirely new, not just new life for individuals. Paul sees an alienated humanity reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, even a new humanity being created. It's a magnificent vision. And now the apostle moves on from the new people to the new standards. And in chapter 4, the first thing he says is about unity. We should keep the unity of the Spirit. Living worthy of our calling includes striving to keep unity. How do we do this? How do we strive to keep unity, to keep peace with fellow Christians who are different from us, who irk us, 
hurt us, sin against us. Verse 2, we show humility. Humility isn't shyness. It's restraining our desire to have others focus their care and attention on us. So we allow others' talents to be more celebrated in church than our own. C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. Thinking about yourself less. Humility promotes unity, as does gentleness. Gentleness or meekness is not weakness. It's kindness, soft encouragement. It's being gentle in word and in action. And patient means long-suffering with others or patiently enduring hard circumstances, which flows into the bearing with one another in love. Remember, at the end of chapter 3, Paul had just prayed that they'd be rooted in love and grow to know more of how huge Christ's love is for them. Well, love leads you to put up with people like Jesus did. Who does God want you to bear with at the moment for the sake of unity? One writer says every local church is like a symphony orchestra. The different musicians combine their talents to make beautiful music. But imagine if the string section becomes competitive and starts showing off by playing faster than everyone else. So the brass section gets aggressive and plays so loudly that they totally dominate and you can't hear anyone else. Then the wind section gets so upset by all the conflict they just stop playing and the percussion section overreacts and they start throwing their drumsticks at everyone else. Their music would not only sound dreadful, the conductor would have to rebuke them or the audience would quickly leave. In fact, this is what's often happened in churches. Too often God's people have been characterised by self-centeredness, sharp tongues and an appetite for conflict. Some have left their church never to return. Some have stayed away from church altogether. So when you read verse 2 and 3, what needs to change in your life? I know sometimes I need to be more gentle in the way I speak to my family members. And maybe gentleness and patience in the church needs to begin with gentleness and patience in me and with my family. While we are to make every effort to keep the unity, we as Christians are already already united, already unified. Look at verses 4 to 6. There is one body, the body of Christ, one spirit, we heard in chapter 1, who indwells all who've trusted in Christ. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Notice that our unity as Christians is Trinitarian. We're unified because we have one Lord Jesus. We're part of his one body. We share the one Holy Spirit. We have one Father who's over and in all believers. 
Just after I was born, uh, in 1977, the Uniting Church formed. And most Prezi churches became Uniting Churches. There was a big uh, push, ecumenical push back then to combine denominations. But do we have to form one Protestant denomination to maintain our unity? Denominational unity is a good thing. It's sad and destructive when divisions happen. It's sad and destructive when unity, though, is sought at the expense of the truth. And believers across denominations, congregations, are still united in Christ. And yes, that should be seen. I remember being so encouraged when I was at uni and I attended the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students National Training Event, NTE. I'd never been gathered together with 1,500 believers before from all over the country who were from many different churches. It really encouraged me in my faith. And whether it's conferences like Together for the Gospel, Belgrave Heights Conventions, or networks like the Gospel Coalition, these affirm and display our unity, as it does when evangelical churches work together for the good of their community or in evangelism. And we may disagree on things like baptism or how to govern our churches and over secondary issues, but the gospel of Jesus Christ we have in common. The gospel and our relationship with the Father, Son and Spirit is what unites us. So let's behave in ways that foster our unity with brothers and sisters. But unity does not equal uniformity. Our next point is diversity. Remember the diversity of gifts. Verses 7 to 11 tell us that Christ is the giver of spiritual gifts and we've each been given a gift of grace as he's determined. And we read here that Christ descended from heaven to earth to live a sinless life in our place, to die and suffer the judgment of God in our place. And then he rose again and ascended to heaven. And the risen, ascended, and victorious king, Christ, is the one who's handed out gifts to his people. It's like he's a victorious king who's sharing the spoils of victory. But here, what he gives to his people is not money or talents, it's people. The gifts are the people, the certain gifted ones. It was he, we're told, who gave, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Compared to other lists of spiritual gifts in Scripture, and they're in the outline, this list is unique. Did you notice that all these in verse 11 are, are word gifts? They all speak God's word. Apostles means sent ones. And people today are still sent out for unique and pioneering ministries, but there's no more apostles of Christ, not in the New Testament sense. The apostles and prophets here formed the foundation of the church and no longer exist. Look back at chapter 2, verse 20. 
God's church, we're told, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The foundation of the church was formed by Christ and his apostles and prophets who compiled his written word. I trust that there can still be prophets like Agabus today, Agabus who predicted the coming of a famine in Acts chapter 11. And if people claim to be prophets, we must always compare what they say with what God's written word says. But the written and inspired word of God is complete. It's been completed and there are no more authoritative apostles and prophets who give new revelations that we must obey. But there are evangelists. And not just the Billy Grahams of this world, maybe it's the CU staff worker or the church planter, or as the empowered course has taught many of us, it could be you sharing the gospel with your friends. And the other word gifts are the pastors and teachers. The original Greek language here suggests that this is even one role, pastor teachers. Every pastor is a teacher, though you can have Bible teachers who are not pastors. Still, Neil, Andy, I, we're we're pastor teachers. And what is our role and purpose? Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. So the people with word gifts... The people who share the gospel and teach God's word, their God-given role is to equip all other believers for their works of service. If you teach children or youth group or a growth group, your role is to equip your people, young or old, for their works of service, to believe in, follow, serve Jesus. Maybe this pandemic has affected your opportunity to serve, but... It's also given us new opportunities, and we'll think about that shortly. But the point is we have different gifts, a diversity of ways we serve, and Christ gave you your gift and me mine. And then he wraps wraps us up and gives us to each other. This brings us to our next point, maturity. We serve to grow to maturity in Christ. Remember the purpose of the apostolic word of God now spoken through evangelists, pastors and teachers is to equip God's people for their service. That means it's not just pastors who do ministry. My preaching and teaching ministry is to equip you for your ministry. So do you see yourself as a servant, someone who ministers, who serves That also means that church is not just here to bless me like I'm some consumer who's filling my shopping basket at the supermarket. The opposite is true. We're all saved and given to our church in order to bless others by serving them. We're not meant to be consumers but contributors Do you see it like that? 
The small group course, Six Steps to Loving Your Church by Matthias Media is fantastic on this. All of us have ministries. All of us, in this general sense, are ministers. Whether that's playing or singing for God's glory, whether it's making or serving food, fixing or cleaning, having an encouraging conversation with someone, whether it's praying for God's people, leading a Bible study, sharing Christ, however it is you serve, God calls you to do it. And you need to serve for the body of Christ to be built up. Did you notice that in verse 12? The body of Christ isn't built up when I do my pastoral ministry. It's when we're all doing our works of service. We can't grow to maturity in Christ unless we are all serving God and one another. When Kirsty and I visited Los Angeles, we did a bus tour on a fun hop-on, hop-off bus. We sat back, listened to our tour guide and enjoyed the sights, like Hollywood. But don't think that church is like that, or that the Christian life is like that, like a bus trip. That maybe the pastors and the elders, they're the drivers, and you can just sit back and take it in. You're not just along for the ride, even if you're now sitting back reclined on your couch watching this live stream. You see, you're not just being driven on a bus, and it's not like you're a spectator watching a sport from the stands. I mean, we don't even have spectators watching sport in stands at the moment, but rather you're on the field. You're one of the players. I watched David Robinson play NBA for the San Antonio Spurs in the 90s. He was a really gifted basketballer. In his biography, he says, I told a magazine, I'm not playing for the fans or for the money, but to honour God. Every night I get out there and try to honour him and play great. And the biographer writes, David also believed that the better he played the more people would listen to him and the greater his opportunity would be to influence others for Christ. He sounds like an evangelist to me. Is honouring God your goal in your sport, your work, your serving God's people? You see, you've got a part to play and so do I. And unless we all get that, unless we're all serving and contributing, we won't grow to maturity. But what does maturity in Christ look like? It's a number of things. In verse 13, Paul talks about it as attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Last week, chapter 3, Paul spoke of fullness of God, and now it's fullness of Christ. So maturity, it's about genuine godliness, Christ-likeness. Still, what does that look like? Verse 13 brings us back to the theme of unity, unity in the faith. That means us all believing the gospel together, trusting in Christ together, helping one another to keep believing the Christian faith. Maturity also means growing together in the knowledge of the Son of God, so that we don't get tossed back and forth 
like a boat in a storm on the waves of false teaching. Instead, if we're mature, we can see and avoid, not be deceived by false teaching. Many churches in Western countries like ours are not preaching and believing in sin anymore. Or the wrath of God, or the reality of hell. Sin, wrath, hell are all out. And acceptance and all-inclusiveness is in. Do you know the truth? None of us understand God perfectly. And yet here Christ wants us to grow in our understanding by discovering more in Scripture and changing our minds as we learn. We're not to retire from a zeal for learning about God. There's even joy in getting to know our Saviour Jesus better. So you might not be a reader, but are you still reading any Christian books at the moment? Could taking sermon notes help you? Because knowing the truth about Christ is vital to us becoming mature. But maturity isn't only about serving and faith and knowledge. Love is essential. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 means that I can't just preach or speak the truth. I must speak it in love. It means that you just you're not you can't just tell the truth to your child or your parent, your friend or your enemy, but you must speak it in love. Not just speak the truth, but speak it in love. That that means speak the truth with gentleness, with respect, with seeking their good. And friends, this is really hard. It is for me. And all people and all churches, we lean one way or the other. We're, We're strong on love and we're soft on truth. Or we're strong on truth and can be soft on love. But both of these tendencies are are unbalanced and unbiblical. You see, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. And love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by the truth. We've got to hold the two together. And so we're not free to say the hard or the horrible things that we want to say to the frustrating or annoying person. We're not free to gossip even when what is said is true. Don't pull yourself up by pulling others down through what you say on social media. When you have conflict with your spouse, your parents, the friend at school, you can't just go and let them have it. We must love. And we actually what it means is we must not speak unless we're going to do it in love. What will that mean for you? What needs to change for you to speak the truth in love? And what needs to change for you to build others up in love? Look at the last verse, verse 16. Building others up happens through our good works, through our loving service. 
These past months, some of you have been serving so generously, including those who make the live stream happen, our growth group leaders, deacons, board, others, many others in unseen ways. But God asks all of us, we need us all to serve and not leave ministry to a few. We need each other. Means we need you. However, if you're, for example, ill and you can't serve at the moment, please don't feel guilty. I hope that this can be an opportunity for you to be thankful for God's grace, that he saves you not by what you do, and also give you an opportunity to be thankful for the loving support that others give you. But otherwise, maybe the way you used to serve, say, on a Sunday, on a roster, or in a kids' ministry, maybe that hasn't been happening. And now there's new opportunities for you to serve. Could you join a cleaning team during the week to help out another ministry group? Could you invite your neighbour who doesn't follow Jesus over for dinner or a play date or to watch the forgiveness winter teaching? Could you invite a growth group, another growth group friend, out for coffee or over for coffee? It could be the text message to someone from church that you haven't seen in months to ask how they're going, how you can pray, or to share a Bible verse that's encouraged you. It could be that you work hard in your job and you give generously to the gospel or to the poor in love. When you mow someone's grass, make a meal, drop flowers or tell someone you're praying for them or a hundred other things you serve in love. As we speak the truth in love and serve one another in love, we will grow to maturity, grow to become more like Christ our head. And when you think about this, it's actually life-changing for people. When, when people are encouraged by you in their following Jesus, it matters to them. It matters to God. It will matter into eternity. It is huge. You're not spectators. You're servants. So how does your Lord Jesus, who has served you, who died for you, whose love for you is huge. How does he want you to serve? How does he want you to respond? What has God called you to? To keep the unity, to serve others in love so that we can grow to maturity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the relationship with you that we have, our Father, through the work of our Lord Jesus, by your Spirit. Thank you that we're all part of his one body and brothers and sisters in Christ, not only with brothers and sisters at Bundy, but with believers around this city, this country, indeed around the world. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be godly and Christ-like in the way that we relate to others for the sake of unity. 
We pray that you would move us by the service, the death, the love of Jesus, that we might serve and build up others in love. Make us people who speak the truth in love in our homes, in our workplaces, in our church relationships, so that we might grow to maturity. And Lord, we pray that this would happen for the glory of Jesus' name, now and forever. Amen.